1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Well, welcome to Another Word in Your Ear and to the man who played guitar in the band that he put together for David Bowie at Live Aid and the man who Morrissey asked to join the Smiths and he worked with McCartney and Iggy Pop and Sinead O'Connor and many others. And he's written a a really, really funny and very candid book about it called Absolute Beginner, Memoirs of the World's Best Least Known Guitarist. And you learn a huge amount about what's involved in touring and what's involved in Recording and about the uh, superhuman levels of diplomacy and the social skills required <laughs> to collaborate with people of that level. Uh, and this is the author Kevin Armstrong. Kevin, lovely to see you. Yeah, lovely to see you too, Mark. Fantastic! It's a, such a good book. And I thought I'd just start with you. Uh, you were in a band I think called Local Heroes in about 1979 when you were about how old would you be? 2021. 20, and yeah. you got you got signed. It's just as extraordinary to remember what life used to be like. You got signed. By Charlie Gillett to his Oval Record label in, in, in an instant. Just explain how that
1: happened. I think I was I was doing some sort of a you know a fill in manpower job as an account, accountancy postboy yeah. in the top of a tower block, and there was lots of time to kill between post rounds. So I used to read The Melody Maker, and read The Enemy, you know, cover to cover, soak it all in. And I read about Charlie, and I, I'd heard him on the radio, of course, and I thought, uh, oh you know, uh, perhaps I'll just call him up
0: <laughs> Yeah.
1: because I was a budding songwriter. I had a band and all the rest of it. So I just called him up and said, uh, and he, uh, uh, to my amazement, he just said, well, yeah, just come and visit me and talk to me. So I, I went to Liston Road where he had his, uh, house and his record company in the basement. I met him and Gordon Elke there. I just plonked an amp down in the front in his living room and, and, uh, uh, and played some songs and he's he gave me a he said i think we can do something with this and and they they gave me a record contract on the spot it was my really first attempt at cracking anything in the music it's absolutely game. unbelievable isn't it i know because it, how you, simple things were back then you know? well it just <laughs> it also, so fast it just makes you think oh i've cracked it now that's that's yeah it.
0: <laughs> and your first kind of collaboration was the books really about you being a kind of session session player and you know working with people side man you know side man side man exactly and uh, your first experience of that, I think, with Thomas Dolby, would that be right? Was, was he the first person you started to kind of collaborate with? Well, when
1: I, when I was making the second Local Heroes album with Oval, with Charlie's uh, label, um, Matthew Seligman, our mutual friend, who uh, yeah. sadly, sadly left us a few years ago, um, he brought. He said, oh, we need some synthesizer on this. I know this guy is really creative with synthesizers. It, let's." So I just was open to it and said, yeah, bring him in. So he came and played on a track on the second Local Heroes album and I was just immediately struck by his uh, originality, the what he brought to the session, what he brought to the music. I just thought, wow, this guy's really, he's another level, you know, he's uh, so amazing. And then when when that Local Heroes came to an end, uh, I got a call from Thomas saying, would you like to come and play some guitar on my my records, and that was that was the start, really, of of a sort of sideman life for me in a way, and also a, bri- a brilliant uh, lucky break because he's so clever, and you can learn so much. I did Incredible learn so much from him. Fantastic yeah. original, yeah. yeah. So I was, well, actually, that connects. The Oprah and you know, yeah, yeah. The Dolby
0: connection connects with what I was going to. I was I was going to start actually, really, by asking you about your association with David Bowie because so many aspects of life as a sideman are illustrated by that. And it's really interesting that at the beginning of the book, you talk about, 1972, going up to Haddon Hall in Beckenham and just as a, an obsessed fan, and kind of hanging around hoping to see bowie so what was it like uh, making that adjustment from being this guy being the great hero well to, to, it, 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 to work it,
1: with i wasn't i wasn't the super obsessed fan in that gaggle of fans i you know who used to go to beckett it was like it was my brother uh, uh you know and uh and and some other mates and i just tagged along for the ride of course i was into bowie and i used to get get lent the records and i'd learn you know you learn to play them on the guitar and i was like really really into it but it was it was the the worst the, the, the significant thing was my brother and as you've read the book you know that he he was the obsessed bowie fan who introduced me to all the music and he he sadly died in a motorbike accident six years before i got to meet bowie so that was the biggest it wasn't it wasn't just the overwhelming nature of like uh, getting a break to work with someone like that. Of course that was great, but a part of me felt this is the right thing. This is this is my path, you know, to do this sort Yeah, of thing. absolutely. And and but the real the real poignant thing was, oh my god, Ross would have just loved this. He would have more than loved this. The whole idea of me even getting anywhere near He's you know, still kind, it's kind of mind hall. Really? I was playing guitar with the guy, you know.
0: I but, know it's extraordinary. <laughs> so and it's interesting when you got the call, I think it was to work on the absolute beginner's soundtrack. You you weren't told who the session was for. Does that happen
1: a lot? I mean, no, you're... that was the only time ever. Very I rare. Think, I think it was I think it was a tax thing, you know. I think at the e- e- EMI they they told me, you know, we can't let you know who's coming. So it's partly a sort of security thing and partly yeah. I think he was he he he'd, he'd, he'd um, worked his requisite number of tax days and wasn't supposed to be in the country doing any work or something. So oh, there'd, yeah, there'd yeah. work around with that, I think that's what it was. Right. And and
0: so you you recorded that soundtrack, and then were asked to 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 do the to arrange, uh, Dancing in the Street, weren't you for his performance with Mick Jagger?
1: Yeah, so, after, after that, Absolute Beginner session, I think because of how well it had gone, and the fact that Absolute Beginner, this Absolute Beginners, the song itself really only took shape because I was there and I took the initiative yeah. to use the remaining time on the session to knock it into shape with him. Um, I think he, he, he then thought, Hmm, you know, maybe this guy can do something else together. And, and, uh, so he asked me about this charity concert he'd been asked to do. Would I like to put a band together for it? And then of course I said yes and then there was a phone call a couple of days later well I've got this idea for an add-on thing you know can you can you come and meet me with a guitar in, in, in Soho in the middle of the night and and, the, and that was him and Mick Jagger uh, coming up with Dancing in the Street so at I, which
0: I, so point you weren't allowed to tell the others that Mick
1: Jagger was going to turn on. Well, it, it, it must have been a beautiful it, feeling to watch that like he, he said well he knew that we would be excited anyway and he just said well don't just, just tack this on the end I, I think it was a little uh maybe a gambit of his to, to really ramp up the excitement among the musicians. Of course, you know, we we were thrilled enough to be working with him, and then Jagger bowls in at the end of the session.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. There's a The, the description of playing Live Aid, which I'm sure everybody watching and listening can can remember that, you know, uh, was yeah. that he, I mean, he put together, you put together for him, this kind of scratch band, really, with Thomas Dolby and Matthew Seligman and various people. and uh, And you talk about none of you really having any idea of the scale of the
1: event, him particularly. Is that right? Well, I think I think maybe he did, but I i mean, I think from my point of view, I just didn't realise quite what a global phenomenon it was turned out to be. Maybe no one did. You know, it was just a sort of, it seemed like a great idea. But in the run-up to it, I had, I can't remember having any, you know, it was sort of along for the ride with Bowie, obviously doing rehearsals and things. But it, was, it wasn't until the morning when the streets were just empty of traffic that I suddenly realised, oh my God, this is a real... This is a really big deal, isn't it? It's not just a gig. It's something, you know, huge. (laughs) And and so it turned out to be. I mean, still a landmark. I I think it still holds the record of the biggest live event ever, doesn't it? Something like that.
0: I can't imagine one of those figures just banded about. Yeah. (laughs) In, in, In numerous millions and billions. But um, how did the rehearsals go for that? I mean, was there any discussion uh, about, did he know what he was going to play straight away or, um, or uh, I you, can't remember a lot you?
1: of detail about that. I think, yes, I think he'd made decisions. There's all I see on the internet. Cause I'm a member of some, you know, these Bowie groups and things that, cause now after he's died, I'm a bit of a sort of, you know, go to source of information for some things. And so, and I go to events and things, but uh, um, there's, there was, there's always been this rumor that five years was, was uh, mooted for, for that set for live aid. Um, and that's everyone says it with quite authority. All these boy fans. Yeah, it was five years. It was five years, but it wasn't. (laughs) So I can say it was loving the alien that was rehearsed. Oh, right. Dropped for the cars movie about, you know, the, 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 um, who's going to drive you home. Yes. Which, which that's at that point, I think live aid turned and the money started flooding in after queen and Bowie and Queen, and then that little film.
0: They played I, the clip with the car song. Exactly, I think that
1: killed the whole day. You know, in terms of like it, where it was going, that was yeah. it. You know, and the money took off coming in after after that. And it was, but it was loving it, loving the alien. We rehearsed at Bray Studios in um, Berkshire, isn't it? The film studios. So that was exciting in this great big film lot. Uh, you know, rehearsing.
0: Was it hard to adjust? afterwards because you must have I mean, you must have realized at the time just how extraordinary that performance
1: was um i think it was just the phone started to ring <laughs> a
3: little bit. yeah yeah, yeah yeah
1: and of course it's an it's a door opener working with such a legendary artist uh, that that suddenly makes you you know a little bit of the pixie dust wears off in, in terms of your professional profile and uh, and the phone rang <laughs> so i was i was a busy guy after that
0: There's tons about Boeing. There's a bit where you talk about how members of the road crew occasionally sent out when you were on tour under blankets in cars as decoys to kind of draw the fans. Well,
1: I knew nothing about that until I moved here to to sunny East Sussex uh, where I met up with a friend, uh, a a, a mutual friend, who I knew had worked for the cult and in the business and we knew a lot. we were together. So on my coffee walk, someone said, oh, you should meet this guy, Gavin Juniper. And he's become a close friend. Um, but he said, oh, I, you know, we, we do have a connection from the past. He said, I was one of the guys under a blanket Sort of running out the back of the town and country in in Kilburn into a van to 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 draw away the paparazzi from. And I had no idea that they did things like that, but that's that's what happened. So I've since become friends with one of them. One of the well, he had on. to
0: have he has to have a a, a a security guy with him, kind of walking invisibly behind him to make sure that he's all right. And it just made made me think that you must look at people like that and think how, and to some extent, how unenviable their position is. I
1: don't know. Did you? Think well, that? I think that's. Part of the essence of my book is the fact that i've I've sort of had this window onto the you know uh, the high table of rock and roll, if you like um without the responsibility and the vulnerabilities that go with it so i yeah. don't I don't envy the fact that Bowie has to have an ex navy seal who can kill you with his eyelids you know <laughs> sort of walking ten feet away from him and he can't go and buy a shirt or something yeah uh, yeah it's it's so that's that's that is a lucky thing it, it I don't envy that in a way yeah.
0: There's a big difference between the obviously between the recording and the performing side of it. You know, there's a bit where you quote Miles Davis. Miles Davis says the note is ten percent, the attitude of the note is ninety percent. Thought that was really interesting because obviously you know anyone can can contribute music to invisibly to a record, but when you're on stage with somebody, who are the people? That, I mean, how how do you work out how to perform? How how differently do you have to perform for Iggy Pop or say Sinead O'Connor?
1: well part of it's dictated by the artist material and the space you're in you know when you if you're touring and 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 doing a um if you're doing stadiums then you play less you play, you know what i mean you allow yeah. that's why stadium bands like coldplay u2 they all this mid tempo very simple music because it comes across in the space so part of it's about that and i i have thought a lot about the the attitude versus ability sort of uh spectrum in terms of musical you know technique or whatever and that 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 is a very interesting quote of Miles Davis because I think about guitarists I see a lot and drummers you know I sort of slightly obsess about the the people's taste in the end musicians so with a guitar you have this enormous spectrum of Ingwie Malmsteen on the one end and and Neil Young on the other so you have this enormous disparity between technical ability but nevertheless the resonance of what people do is only about their attitude no one cares that Neil Young can't play a ripping sort of tapping solo at 90 miles an hour. In fact, he can say more with one note than those guys can in, in a page of music or, you know, you know, precisely. So, it's it's is that, real
0: youngness, isn't it? That well, matters. that's
1: why. Right. And, and Miles yeah. had the same thing. He was a kind of mixture, wasn't he? You know, he could play a couple of notes and it was like, Oh my God, it's Miles Davis, BB King plays one note on the guitar and you know who it is. So there is this thing, it, which the great thing about pop music, I think is it, it, it's a broad church. So you can, you can be into very technical virtuoso Musicians, if you like, or you can find something really genuinely moving in in something that's very simple.
0: You talk about uh, the different characters of uh, of musicians to some extent. Talk about horn sections, always have the best best sense of humour. Uh, are the other are particular characters that become guitarists or bassists? are there any archetypes or drummers or whatever uh, i, I mean, don't know
1: the, yeah i think i think there can are you generalize they, or? yeah they, you i don't know whether you can there's lots of jokes aren't there you know um what do you call a, a, a drummer without a girlfriend homeless and things like you know there's all these <laughs> jokes about sort of character of musicians but yeah you can sort you can partly generalize but, but more often than not you pe- make, meet people who just defy the rules really and uh so uh I think nowadays people are more, are much more uh, aware of their role uh, in in that way, and it's yeah. And I don't know whether you can generalise. I think you used to be able to, but it's like it's like we've come from an era where you know lots of things were funny and lots of generalisations were funny, but in real life, really, <laughs> I don't know.
0: Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. And you also talk about imposter syndrome, which is really interesting. That it's something you never seem to kind of escape from is that whenever you get a call from someone you, you keep thinking your first reaction is am i worthy i mean
1: is that is that something that you eventually get over or well sometimes i feel qualified for a gig or you know or yeah. a little overqualified now after i been doing, doing it so long um but the imposter syndrome is always there it, it, it takes more the form in me of uh, being in front of a large crowd with a guitar around my neck and sort of being convinced that at least half the audience are better players than me <laughs> and that's
0: something you're looking at you going why him you know, yeah, right. i know but then that's
1: the, that, that's, where, that's where it goes in your head they're all they're better than me but it's me standing here and not them <laughs> so there's some reason for that you know so uh yeah i think i think imposter syndrome is a It can be a useful demon because it makes you slightly over-prepare or make sure you're really ready for something. Um, But but if you listen to it too hard, then, you know, just dismiss it. Tell it to go away because there's a reason you're supposed to be there.
2: Selling a little or a lot?
3: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
2: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: You talk about, um, you talk so much in the book about just diplomacy. It's all about something a film director, really, that you've got to get on with these people. You've got to collaborate. You've got to, got to understand the way they work. And you had some really, really different and quite, quite extraordinary people to work with. Can you think of anyone who was particularly demanding in terms of how diplomatic you had to be?
1: Well, I mean, there is the, there is the, 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 the uh, stories in the book about Paul McCartney. And uh, I, I felt unsure around him. A little bit sort of, you know, I don't know. I didn't know quite how to react to some of his uh, some of the things he said. And so, you know, like in general life, you, you click with some people and you don't click with others. But I think if you want a long career in music, it is always a good idea to sort of keep this shut and these open quite a lot, especially if you're working with high profile people, because you know they're they are kings and queens and they and that's that's why they're there and uh so and your your job is to make them happy and and add something to what they do and i think it always to be conscious of that is good that you can have your little moments where you shine and where you go ah, oh, it's just me now but but um mostly you, you you have to be diplomatic like you say
0: i thought i was rather touched by the fact that mccartney Kept telling stories about the Beatles, and I thought, thought so that's what people expect. So he just rolls them out, I guess. I think you
1: were rather underwhelmed by them. I, I, I was just, I didn't see, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I just thought they'd be, I thought they'd have better punch lines. I think I said that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm still a fan. You see, I, th- this is the thing. There's unfinished business with Paul McCartney in my life. I still think somehow there's a chapter to be written about that relationship because I love his music so much, and I, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, of the Beatles and, and post-Beatles stuff. And uh, uh, you know, I just didn't didn't work. It didn't work that out, and I, I, I don't know why.
0: It's so revealing. The book about about what it takes to be front man you know you're, you're not a, a really a front man you're a side not really and, and, and you know Michael Hutchins has an observation where you're in a club I think with Michael Hutchinson people wanted to play and he said he's terrified of small crowds I thought that was so revealing because obviously those kind of people could deal with an enormous crowd, but when they're yeah. in that kind of position where they're really being scrutinised, it's it, they're very self-conscious. Would that it's be right?
1: funny, isn't it? I think it yeah. might have to do with the fact that maybe his maybe he lacks confidence without the enormous PA and the band behind him roaring and the huge crowd and the big fanfare of the of the gig. And and but you know when you're when you're standing with one guitar in a pub, eye to eye with people, uh, then it is a very different prospect. And I, I do I do some one man shows, so it's not i mean to front a band i think i can do it i don't know maybe not like uh, some of the some of the stars i've worked with but i have enough confidence to perform for myself in front of a small crowd i can do that in an art center or a pub or a little theater or whatever and i and i'm doing that more now i just did it in new york you know um uh but it's, uh, it's, it is a different prospect. Large crowds are just an amorphous mass of love. That's what they are. You watch Iggy Pop and it's like, it's like the Pied Piper, extraordinary. He doesn't have to connect with one person. He has to connect with 30,000 in front of him. And he can do it with a wave of his arm. It's, it's a, magic, uh, a magic thing. Some people. It have. must
0: be an amazing feeling to feel that you've, you've changed the mood of that crowd, of a crowd that big, that, that you've changed well, the gear somehow.
1: Well, yeah, playing the intro behind Bowie to Rebel Rebel or the intro to The Passenger, or the intro to uh, yes. uh, Nothing Compares to You with Sinead O'Connor in front of large crowds. And when I'm on my, I'm on my, my guitars on its own and I just start playing and the crowd go nuts. And I know at that moment it's nothing to do with me, it's, but this is, this, it's great to light the match, to have the match in your hand and go, here we go.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. So, but Morrissey, uh, at one point, you know, Johnny Marr had left the Smiths and you're sort of brought into his orbit. And then he kind of offers you the job, doesn't he? And uh, and very sensibly, I might say, you turn it down. But I mean, you
1: turn it down for, for what reasons? I I literally turned it down because I thought I couldn't, I thought the Smiths was done. I don't, th- I don't, th- don't know whether any guitarist could have could have uh, completed something called the Smiths at that point. I just thought him and Johnny was the Smiths, and that chemistry between them, the writing, and and that that was the Smiths. And there's no point in putting another guitar player in there and calling it the Smiths. So I, that's what I felt. And I, yeah. I, I don't know. What, I, at some points in my life, I might not have had the confidence to say that to him, but I did say that to him. I just said, I think you're mad and I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> and, I, and, it, and it turned out to be right because I got a call a year later when he was making uh, some solo stuff to say, "I'll oh, come and play. And I, that said, yeah, of course. Which mar- is
0: another amazing section of the book. And, and again, you. You, you, you learn what people need as part of their armory to survive when they're at that level and i felt that he didn't have some of it you said that when he got a bad review in the enemy he would disappear to his room (laughs) weeping for kind of two days and i thought (laughs) how could somebody that that thin skin survive
1: actually i don't know i mean that's the thing isn't it you know these people some of them are vulnerable what you have to remember about artists like that is they give up more or less all vestiges of normal life to become really self-obsessed yes what they do and 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 someone like Morrissey I couldn't have imagined that but really he was hurt by criticism so the first session I did with him I think was the song Ouija board Ouija board which if you sound if you hear it now it's like oh it's a great little record but it's um but it was it was ridiculous people thought it was self-parody or something and he got some bad reviews and literally he went into a sort of oh god and disappeared (laughs) to lick his wounds and uh yeah so thin skin comes with the territory sometimes even iggy i think has some you know occasionally asked um at a festival backstage if we're waiting for another band to finish uh he'll 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 say you know did they did you think they like them do you think they'll like us you know literally i've heard him say this in the past few years do you think they'll like me
0: but if you don't have that attitude you know, maybe if you assume it's going to be okay, maybe you're just not going to put on such a good performance. I mean, it's like the whole thing about how it's good to be a little bit nervous, isn't it?
1: I think so, and and again, with the, it's, it's all encapsulated in the title of my book, which neatly refers to the you know my big break song with Bowie. But you always have to remember, you can learn something. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this or how how good you think you are. You know, you can learn something from the most challenging or even the most something you walk into and you think, oh, this is easy. This is a walk in the park. There's something you're missing. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, you can always learn. You know this. You can always learn something from from a professional situation, um, uh, something surprising. You're talking about
0: Iggy there, and there's a fantastic uh, section of the book where you talk about his transformation. You say that he's actually a kind of a laid-back, polite, erudite Midwest gentleman, or whatever. And then he becomes this kind of uh, this kind of total motherfucker. And yes. Descri- you describe the transformation, which takes several hours, doesn't it, before you go on stage? So what does he do? In order to well, I think digital. he
1: has. I think he's developed over the years, and it started when I was with. Because you remember, I've done two stints with him: one in the mid '80s, and one in the yeah. 2014 to 19. And so, <laughs> what he does is, uh, I think he's developed these routines. It's a mixture of like he does qigong, you know, martial arts, and a yeah. sort of, uh, uh, and he also fasts. And he and he go and he has this sort of slightly meditative routine where he gets to a place and he will literally have a conversation with us, with the band or whatever, and then he'll be kind of sequester himself for a, a, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half, where he's literally working on himself, and it's a very quiet process. But literally, that's what he does. He, I think, he's developed this very, you know, because he, he's a he's a creature of craft, Iggy Pop. He's not just a wild man. He's surprisingly. Uh, prepares himself as a performer and takes care of his own psychological approach to it. So he knows that when he hits that stage, he's going to have it under control. You know, there's nothing going to be like, oh, I I think in maybe in the old days when he was uh, using or abusing, maybe that was different. But I think uh, he's, 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 he's taken very good care of his gifts and that's what he does. So you kind of get the impression that.
0: That he kind of reappears, or like something, uh, something out of
1: American Werewolf in London. It's, just it's almost transformed. like it's almost there like he that. is, with it's almost veins like, bulging. Like, you know, yeah, that's almost like that. He's even like going, rrr, rrr, ah. you know, there's a, these kind of grunts that come out of him just before we go on stage. We, we're riding to the stage, and you can't talk to him. There's no way you can. You know, he's just like he's ready at that point, and it's it's wonderful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and John Lydon too you work with you were on Top of the Pops I think with Public Image you talk about him being incredibly obnoxious to everybody around him and yet, yet actually kind of quite sweet with the band
1: I mean, very just... charming very, very nice guy uh, and this is why I, I mean I've had the luck to work with quite a lot of characters who people might regard as difficult or yeah uh, extreme characters in some way and they can be but I, I, I some of it with Leiden, i think it was just a definitely a kind of a wind up you know he likes he likes to create create chaos around him and uncertainty in people and it, but it's all quite good natured um uh, you know, you wouldn't get into a fight over it or anything. But but it's all it's it's very funny. I think Grace Jones does the same thing, really. I think she just deliberately sort of creates a, a trail, a wake of chaos around her, and ask, uh, her. Yeah, there's
0: amazing section about her. And about <laughs> Sinead O'Connor. The Sinead O'Connor bit's extraordinary. It's a bit of the Sinead O'Connor thing where her tour manager would tip off uh airports that you were going to be there at a certain time in order that her fans could turn up and therefore you'd complain about being harassed by the fans and being rushed through security yeah <laughs> that's,
1: that's a really that's a typical tour manager move, that's right, extraordinary yeah. move that's brilliant. yeah i love that fantastic uh, but she sounded sure
0: incredibly about unpredictable you were kind of you were just creating yeah. this kind of canvas for her to go off some nights uh, you know with enormous success and creativity and sometimes to be absolutely the opposite
1: yeah, well, I mean, I was very sad when she went uh, the other week, and it was, yeah. you know, uh, she again, she's she's the archetypal vulnerable artist, really. I mean, somebody who uh, was a transcend could be transcendental, or she could be really vulnerable and really really closed in. So um, she was uh, a, you know, I'm sure she there was a real roller coaster in her head all the time, um, but she was lovely. She was she could be very kind and extremely yeah. funny as well. Yeah. There's uh,
0: lots of philosophical stuff uh, at the end of the book about the age that you were operating in and you talk about it being full of invention and rebellion and protest and now you say that everything is perfectly pitched vocals and mathematically timed corrected beat that's dispiriting isn't it really well, Yeah, that, I think. Is, maybe,
1: I, I was wondering about that bit in the book and I was wondering if I'm over egging it because what I'm really talking about is when you randomly turn the radio on in the car mostly what you hear is a, just oral garbage you know coming into your I think it's
0: more really big radio hits isn't it because there, there obviously must be a lot of people still operating with the same uh, of
1: course. and i listen to for instance iggy's six music show you know and uh you you hear a lot of quite interesting music new music coming out but the way pop music and the mainstream of it has gone we've lost that kind of tribal rebellious energy we had when i was a nipper and when you were yeah and and, and it's become a sort of soundtrack to shopping a little bit and i i don't like that i don't feel very comfortable with it
0: no that's fair enough would you would you feel that um There's still, I mean, obviously there's more, probably more touring opportunities now, but maybe less recording opportunities. Would you feel that your job, that kind of sideman job, still exists in the same way, the same same possibilities?
1: My role at my age has morphed into a sort of, um, you know, uh, legacy artist in a way or... or, yeah. Doing this thing with Glenn Matlock and Clem Burke and Katie Puckrick and and then playing with Iggy even and and doing these things and doing the Bowie conventions and things like that. I think because of the, the way we've grown up alongside the arc of pop music and alongside its glory days, there's now a live legacy for, 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 for bands where you know people want to see that kind of quality that's grown up yeah. in front of them. And so that so I, I've still got legs as a live musician for sure.
0: So the most charismatic person you've ever worked with, do you think?
1: Well, it's got to be Bowie, hasn't it, really? Yeah. And and Iggy, a close second. I mean, they're both just, the uh, energy comes rippling off them, and they, they, yeah, it's amazing. They're amazing people.
0: Is there anyone you would really love to have worked with that you never did?
1: Yeah, people ask me that. I mean, I used to say, I used to think Van Morrison would have been on my bucket list just because I loved his music when I was younger very very much. And if, uh, but. um and you- I- Dying to know whether or not he's quite as curmudgeonly as people make out. You know, he is. He is. I There's think a he is in the in the book. Actually, maybe I'll share it with you. I just I don't know why. I think I'd had one too many glasses of wine at some sort of um you know industry event, and I found myself standing next to Fred Morrison. Slightly, I was slightly drunk, and I just I think I just sort of buttonholing me like, "Why are you a bit of a cunt on <laughs> stage?" <So I laughs> <laughs> looked at it's me. delicately and- put. <laughs> yeah. What was his response? Just sort of turned and, and away. <laughs> I've had I I know maybe many, that door will remain closed to you professionally. And that's completely understandable from my approach. But yeah, yeah. He, I've known a f- number of musicians who work with him closely, and that they don't have an easy time of it. He likes to destabilise. I think. Yeah. Anyway, I nearly got asked to play with Tom Jones this year, um, um, but for the la- lack of a, a, an ongoing American visa, that might have happened. So I'm I'm my diary still yawning and looking for that looking for that so what are the main lessons you've learned i uh, just to always just to always be humble and and uh, in a way and and uh, try and learn something and 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 just enjoy your life i mean i've i've always i've enjoyed my career very very much and it's not been by design it's been just because i followed the idea of I, you know not getting stuck anywhere just trying to make music and enjoy it and say yes to everything so that's what i'd say just say yes to everything Say yes
0: to everything absolutely
1: yeah find out, and find out what you really like well
0: it's a fantastic book uh, as i was saying earlier i mean it's just not only not even really really funny just full of good stories but you get such an insight to things i never knew about the way records are put together but also about about just how much how much social ability is required to kind of get on with and adjust to this variety of different people? It's fantastic. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. And uh, it is out now. Absolute beginner and uh, available in all good bookshops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Kevin, loving to talk to you. Fantastic. Let's talk to you as well. See you go. This podcast
1: was brought to you by the Word.